It's a pleasant, peaceful day in March on the northeast side of San Antonio, Texas. Birds sing as the Yebra family, Mom Trista, and two of her three children lounge in their front yard. It's a nice break from the many demands of pandemic life. Trista's third child, her 18-year-old son Jesse, drives up to the house and joins the family. Jesse is a high school senior. This year has been a challenge for him, and driving eases his mind. It's just relaxing to me, like music on, windows down, just driving, <laughs> cruising, any, anywhere. Like if, if they ask me to go anywhere, I'll just go anywhere I need to go. Jesse takes long drives to shake off the stress of trying to attend his final year of high school on Zoom. I feel like in-person is better for me because I, I went for a week to in-person because I had testing to do, and I liked it. But the whole like Zoom stuff, I'm not real comfortable with that. So that's why my attendance isn't as great. Jesse's little sister, Jesenia, also struggles with Zoom classes. Because I get so nervous when I like join and I don't want to talk to any, like not like that, but like I just get so nervous because they like want me to talk and I don't know anybody. So it's just like, oh my gosh. All three of the Yebra children are keeping up with their schoolwork for the most part but they sometimes just skip the Zoom classes, which means they're counted as absent. Trista wouldn't say she's okay with that, but also it's a pandemic. I'm on them, but not like as if it was like they were going to school and skipping. Like, what are you doing? How come? Oh, you're grounded. Give me the phone. You know, something. It's, it's not like that. It, 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 that dynamic is not even on the table. Like many American families, the Yebras have found themselves stuck firmly between a rock and a hard place. Send the kids to school and risk infecting the whole family with a COVID virus, or keep them home to protect the family's health, but sacrifice so much related to the quality of their educations and their quality of life. Trista says the decision to keep her children home was not an easy one, it essentially came down to economics. See, Trista's husband is the family breadwinner. He got COVID last year, and the possibility of reinfection, no matter how small, was a big factor in their decision. We had a family meeting, and my husband was like, no, we can't risk it, because if I get sick again, then who's going to take care of this family? We've already been hit once. He goes, I can't take another hit. So they're all doing the best they can like most of us. But now that Americans are being vaccinated at a rapid pace, it's time to think about what's next for our kids. What can we do now as parents and as a society to help them find their way forward after so much individual and collective trauma? This is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petri. This week, we have a conversation about children and the pandemic with Dr. Erwin Redlener. Dr. Redlener has become a familiar face over the last year, appearing regularly on national news shows to help Americans better understand this virus and the trajectory of the pandemic. Redlener is a pediatrician. He's also a co-founder of an organization called the Children's Health Fund that helps underserved kids access health care. And he's the founding director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at the Earth Institute of Columbia University. Basically, he's an expert in children's health and disasters. 
When I think of disasters, I immediately think about terrible events like the 2010 Haiti earthquake, the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan, wildfires, tornadoes, and hurricanes in the U.S., and even, on a smaller scale, the winter storm and massive power failure in February that killed more than 100 people in Texas. But I also think the pandemic can be categorized as a disaster. I asked Dr. Redliner if he agreed. He does. This is a really serious disaster. And, um, you know, we think about this issue. What is a disaster? It's some kind of event that has serious consequences for, for people. And I'm saying that on purpose because we have all kinds of hazards. You know, if there were no people on the planet, we'd still be having, you know, volcanoes and serious storms and so on. But if people are not in harm's way because of a disaster, because of a particular hazard, then we don't call it a disaster. But here we have a biological disaster that we call a pandemic that uh, has obviously affected, you know, millions and millions of people around the world. And just in the United States, 550,000 fatalities and about two and a half million fatalities across the globe. So, yes, uh, the pandemic I guess all pandemics would be qualified as as a real disaster. So how is this disaster impacting kids specifically? Medically speaking, children have been less affected than um, than older people by actually catching the disease, although they can carry it pretty easily in terms of actually getting sick. uh, The number of children who have gotten sick or have not survived uh, COVID-19 is really relatively very small. It had been about 3% of all cases. It's now, maybe it's 10%, but still the vast majority of individuals who uh, get sick from COVID are adults. But coming back to children, if it's not the medical issues that are most concerning, um, what is most concerning? And to me, this interruption in their education is absolutely devastating, Bonnie. You know, it's like kids who were struggling before the pandemic, uh, struggling in school, uh, are now having a huge additional educational trauma and disruption of their education from uh, schools being closed down, reopened, closed down, reopened. This is not been good for children who have been struggling. I worry a lot, Bonnie, about how we're going to remediate all those children. The Biden administration has made getting kids back to school in person a priority. So what do we need to do to get them back to school safely, especially with guidance evolving as it inevitably does when we learn more about something? For example, the CDC recently changed its physical distancing recommendation for schools from the standard six feet to just three feet, confusing everyone. Yeah, this is an incredible uh, challenge because we want kids to be back in school. I'm like I'm I'm quasi obsessed with the fact that these kids have been so disrupted and we need to get them back to school. By the way, just before I answer you specifically, I just want to say that You know, for adults who have been affected by the pandemic, however they're affected, we can get through it, but it means a lot to the children and it means a lot to the future. So if we have kids who are struggling in school, who now have this big setback of no school for a year, 
uh, that is an incredible impact on them. It may affect the rest of their lives because they may never recover from this setback in their education and end up having really reduced opportunities for being successful as adults uh, later on. And this is actually important for the country's future. You know, to have millions of children now become less productive than they could have been uh, and needing more re remediation is a disaster for America's future. Okay, so getting back to school, we just need to make sure that the environment in school is safe. It's a little complicated, this issue of, well, three feet's fine when it used to be six feet. Uh, you know, there are, there are definitely studies that have supported the CDC's recommendation that it be reduced to three feet. And of course, that would really improve uh, the capacity in schools because they don't need as much separation. I'm assuming that those initial studies will be verified by longer term studies, but I was a little, uh, am a little skeptical, but we'll see. But if it's three feet, that's, that's good news. The second thing is there need to be absolute strict maintenance of the public health measures that are designed to uh, reduce the spread. So hand washing, uh, face mask, hygiene, all important and must be continued now. But the other thing that is really important for schools is this kind of uh, uh, issue about ventilation in the classrooms. Because if you're, even if you're hand washing, wearing masks, and you have a tightly closed room without ventilation, those coronaviruses will remain in the air and can still get breathed in by children. So every room occupied by you know, a teacher and students and needs to be checked to make sure the ventilation is proper. Dr. Redliner stressed there that good ventilation is essential. You've got to keep that air moving to minimize the risk of infection, even if everyone is masked and distanced. The amount of time you're in the presence of the virus hanging in the air increases the likelihood that it'll make its way into your lungs one way or another, right? For some schools, that's an easy thing to manage. The schools are well ventilated already or can easily be made so. They have lots of safe space for outdoor activities. But for other schools, that's a big challenge. The buildings are in disrepair. The schools are overcrowded. They don't have safe outdoor spaces. What about those schools? What about those kids? How do we keep them safe? It's money. We have to make the schools safe. And one of the um, one of the uh, ideas in the American Rescue Plan is is providing money to do the to meet the goals. So if the goal is to get the schools open, we need to make sure that there's money for every individual school system and district and school building. So this is this is laborious, but in the schools uh, in the city where you live uh, that do not have. Uh, uh, the ability to make those classrooms safe in the way that we just talked about. I think they, there needs to be funds available so they can check and fix the ventilation so they can make sure that they've got everything in place and that everybody's been vaccinated. So I, I think this is, this is one of those times where money is going to, uh, it's going to have to be applied, have to be spent to make sure the, those classrooms and schools are safe. Dr. Redliner just mentioned using money from the American Rescue Plan to get school buildings and properties ready for safe, in-person pandemic learning. 
The American Rescue Plan is the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package President Biden signed into law in March. $122 billion of that money is earmarked for getting schools reopened safely. So that money, hopefully, will get students back into their classrooms. But then we have to help them get caught up. Some kids have been distance learning for more than a year now, and more than a few of them have fallen behind. I asked Dr. Redliner how we help get them back on track. Well, we can't have school as usual. We can't have these, you know, two-month antiquated summer vacations or uh, hours that are not, you know, sufficient during the regular school day. So we're going to have to pay for uh, the capacity to teach kids through the summer uh, longer hours and whatever else we need to do in terms of uh, making sure that kids have the wherewithal. Uh, and I mean, schools have the wherewithal and kids have the ability to be in school longer. That's one of the things it's just going to take. I, and I think we're going to have to be thinking about that. And that's going to be costly. And there's also going to be resistance from teachers unions who are not necessarily interested in having their simplifications um, eliminated or reduced or um, having the number of hours they're expected to teach expanded. But I, I think we have to, you know, this is one of those, we're all, in the, we're all in this together situations where we're going to have to say, listen, it's really important that we get our children back on track educationally, whatever it takes. And I think that's what we're going to be uh, working on. I'm among the parents who's kept their child home for more than a year. My daughter has a computer, a nice workspace, a college-educated mom who works from home. Really, everything a distance-learning child needs to succeed. One of the reasons I kept her home is because, well, I could. If all of the parents who could keep their kids home did keep their kids home, the thinking went, then kids who had fewer resources at home and needed to go to the school building to learn, they could do so more safely because schools would be less crowded. So that's one reason she's been home. But frankly, another reason is because while healthy 15-year-olds like my daughter are at low risk of getting severe disease if they get COVID, they're not at no risk. And while multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children is a rare complication, it happens. And what about long COVID? We don't know yet how that might impact kids. I was unwilling to take even a small chance if I didn't have to. And I didn't. But that hasn't been without consequences. My daughter has been essentially alone for a year. She's an only child. And while we're very close, I'm not a teenager or her friend. I'm her mom. So that isn't great. For some children, it's been beyond difficult. It's impacted their mental health in deeper ways. Some say they've experienced suicidal thoughts. Some have died by suicide, so that, too, is a risk. The cost-benefit analysis has been next to impossible for parents over the last year. I asked Dr. Redliner about that. You know, um, you make an interesting point, about it, and you also express it in a very interesting way, because when it's your child experiencing anything, it's 100%. But when you're looking at populations and we say that the suicide rate uh, is up by 
20 to 30 percent, let's say. We're talking about a small number, relatively speaking, but a significant increase. How do you manage that in terms of your now you're a parent? Now you're not a journalist, you're not a you're not a public health doctor. You're saying, okay, what does that mean for me and my teenager? Well, it means that we need extra vigilance, um, behavioral changes in your child, uh, children who become withdrawn, uh, children who are not sleeping well, children who are expressing thoughts and uh, uh, concerns that are unusual, uh, disconnecting from friends, being angry. You know, those are the kind of warning signs that would make you as an individual family, as a parent, say, I'm worried about my child. And I want to get I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. So if, it, if you feel like it's like beyond what you can manage, you need to go to the primary care doctor or get an evaluation from a, an appropriate mental health provider. And I wouldn't waste time with, you know, thinking about that too long, because if you're seeing those kinds of signs that I just mentioned, that should be uh, a, uh, an alarm bell on a certain level to kind of let's see what we let's see what's going on. So just differentiating between the statistics and the realities for any individual family. Um, and even though there's a, definitely been an increase in mental health and emotional, psychological, behavioral problems in children and suicide rates, unfortunately, um, when you boil it down to you and your kids, uh, now we're, we're now we're not we're not really focusing on the big statistics, but we're focusing on the behavioral uh, realities with your child and what you need to do if things uh, seem uh, seriously out of control. I want to be really careful when I talk about this subject. I don't want anyone to think when I say I've kept my child home to learn remotely for more than a year now that I'm judging their choices to do otherwise or am unconcerned about the emotional well-being of and the increase in completed suicides among teens, even if it's statistically small. Like Dr. Redliner said, if something happens in your family, the statistic becomes 100%. When I was 19, my 15-year-old sister died by suicide, and my family never really recovered. So I am very serious when I talk about children and their emotional health, because no matter how tiny the percentage of teenagers who died by suicide back then, in my family, the chance that one of us would die by suicide was 100%. I'm not indifferent to this risk. It's real. And the reason some parents have pushed so hard for in-person learning, I get it. This has been hard for kids, and it's something all parents need to be vigilant about. So I asked Dr. Redliner to tell me what, as a pediatrician, he would look for when seeing a child in his office for an exam. Yeah, great question. So, um, in fact, I ask a lot of kids about, how are you doing? How has it been? What's it like? How's life different? And open-ended questions that don't, you know, specifically, how are you doing in school, uh, would not be the way I would approach it. It's more generally, how are you? And the other thing, especially for older, for teenagers, 
One powerful question is, how are your friends doing? It's often easier for them to talk about how their friends are doing than how they are doing uh, personally. And then you could get to uh, more uh, direct personal uh, information gathering. But asking about, uh, you know, how things are going, what is what would you change if you could change? What are you most looking forward to? How will you know when things are back to normal? What are you mostly missing? And those kinds of questions really uh, invoke very interesting and telling responses uh, from young people. So what you're looking for is a child who seems uh, more depressed than they should be, who's not making eye contact, um, and who's uh, answering in very, you know, with one word answers uh, and uh, is acting in ways that, that uh make you as a pediatrician feel that this behavior is probably off kilter. Now, you also have to know this child before. How are these children in general? Are they deaf? Are they shy? Are they outgoing? Um, if a child's been particularly shy always, and then you're in the exam and, and the child is not making eye contact, that's interpreted differently than uh, if you know this kid was not like that before the pandemic. Or if, or if the parent says, you know, I'm really I'm worried because uh, my son or daughter is acting differently, spending a lot of time in his or her room, uh, not communicating very well. All of that adds to the observations that we're making during the exam itself. If you or your child or someone you know may be considering self-harm, Text HOME to 741-741 or call 1-800-273-8255, please. Resilience. We've talked a lot over the last year on Petri Dish about building our personal resilience to get through this. And we need to help our children do that, too. Resilience developed in childhood will carry a person through the rest of their lives. Red Leonard has written a lot about building resilience in children and recently building resilience during a pandemic. How do we help our kids do that? Yeah, so this is a this is a really uh, interesting challenge. And first of all, let me just say something about resiliency, what I mean by that. So some people are born uh, kind of resilient. You could see this in young children where they're able to accommodate uh, trauma and adversity differently and remain uh, positive, remain able to uh, function, whether it's in school or in their social situations. And we see this a lot in any kind of disaster where a family and children have been traumatized and they may, for example, family may need to live in temporary housing for an extended period of time. Uh, they may have their education disrupted as we're talking about with uh, the pandemic. And, um, uh, and other children are more uh, fragile from a resiliency point of view that a similar kind of trauma or deprivation or disruption uh, may, may cause some consequences psychologically, educationally, and so on. So the question is, what do we do to make sure that we have fostered uh, the ability of resilience, uh, of, of kids becoming resilient. And a lot of that 
has to do with what um, what uh, how the parents function when a family is experiencing a traumatic or disruptive event. And I want to start with that point because what the parents do is always a model for how the children will behave and react to particular situations. So starting with uh, what it is that we would ask parents to think about is uh, trying to reduce the impact of the trauma on children. And that may mean, for example, in a a situation where um, there's been a major natural event and uh, you have young children in the house, uh, they should be uh, shielded from watching uh, too much television. They should be, uh, in terms of uh, coverage of whatever the event is, uh, they parents should really strive to keep routines normal. Parents, in other words, like having mealtime at a regular time, having bedtime, having the uh, bedtime routines for young children remain uh, remain uh, as similar as possible to what was going on before the event. Um, parents also need to be very reassuring of children and for young children who may be emotionally fragile, not sharing your own concerns. This is tough for a lot of uh, adults who have children, which is that, you know, they're kind of an open book emotionally. And if they're traumatized and uh, psychologically uh, affected by something, um, they should try to uh, refrain from sharing too much of their own anxieties with children. This is where, you know, parenting can be tough. And this is one of those regions where you have to kind of make sure that your focus is on what your children are hearing from you and how what kind of behavior you are modeling for them. And uh, and that means, uh, you know, it means also expressing, um, you know, being as close as possible when when things are difficult, you know, unspoken gestures and hugging and staying close to your kids and so on is important. And also making sure you're able to answer questions that they may have. The, and for younger children, obviously, you're going to organize the uh, information that you give children or and how you respond to questions differently than you would for, for a teenager, let's say. And um, so this is about parent management. A lot of it is. When Dr. Red Leonard says parent management, he doesn't mean he's managing parents. He's referring to how parents manage themselves and how they help children manage their fears. Since my daughter was little, if things were a little crazy in our world from Hurricane Ike in Houston in 2008 or the great winter storm in Dallas in 2011, yes, we lived in both those cities when those things happened, or even the February winter storm and power failure in Texas this year, I'd explain what was happening in age-appropriate terms and remind her that she was safe, that it was my job to keep her safe, and I fully intended to do that job. I think her father and I helped her feel solid, safe, and loved during those times. Now, I'm not a perfect parent, and her father and I, my ex-husband, don't have a perfect relationship. But I do think we handled those moments well, and that those moments, I hope, have added to my daughter's resilience. The second thing is that the encouragement by parents for their uh, children to do things uh, independently. So, um, you know, reading and uh, and this is during a time when there's been trauma to the family or in the community, uh, just encouraging uh, children to be 
you know, to be strong and to do their thing and to uh, not be overly affected by what may be happening around them. The other, on the other hand, there may be times when families, uh, let's say during a pandemic where you've lost someone close to you, um, it is important that uh, parents are comfortable talking to their kids about the loss and what it means and how we're going to go on from here and so on. This happens in every kind of uh, disaster, too, including natural disasters, where, like in a flood, where community may be destroyed, the family might have to live in temporary uh, shelters for an extended period of time. Uh, parents maintaining a sense of balance, a sense of humor, a sense of uh, transmitting to children that uh, things are okay and the parents are have things under control, even in, in complex uh, situations. Dr. Redliner has outlined a lot of the work we have ahead as parents and as a society to support and guide the children who will become the adults of our future. The adults will be in charge of things when I'm old and lounging on my patio with my cats and my dogs, hoping younger adults have got it all under control. I asked Dr. Redliner to share any conclusions he's come to about where we are and where we're going. We had a nice conversation about resiliency, Bonnie, and, and children. And the reality is that most children are surprisingly resilient. And I think if we can support them, if we can do something about school and educational remediation, I think I have confidence that children will bounce back, especially if parents are supportive of that. And parents themselves feel positive and optimistic about the future. And I, I think if we could provide the support and parents can hang in there, I think we could be in pretty good shape. The only caveat or exception might be children who are struggling beforehand, who needed a lot of services. We're going to need special programs to make sure that those children get the attention and the support that they need. Dr. Redliner, thank you so much. Very welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. It's been so difficult as parents to make decisions over the last year. Not good decisions or bad decisions. It's been difficult to make any decisions. The virus, evolving guidance, the unwillingness of a large number of people to take pandemic precautions, even if it was just wear a mask. Concerns about the safety of schools concerns about what will be lost by keeping kids home, concerns about the health of teachers, office staff, cafeteria workers, bus drivers, and all the other adults who might be put at risk if students attended school in person, worry about the emotional and behavioral health of kids whose lives have been utterly upended by this pandemic, worry that some of them will slip into deep depression and drown before we even recognize they're experiencing anything beyond the expected unhappiness associated with this pandemic upheaval. Worry for children whose parents are essential workers and at greater risk, and who may work several jobs and still struggle to make ends meet, and who may not have access to the technology and support they need for educational success, and fear for children trapped in homes with neglectful or violent parents with no one to recognize they're in danger and do something about it. It seems like there have been precisely no correct answers about anything 
since the first COVID wave started washing over this country more than a year ago. Now it's April 2021, and millions of American adults are being vaccinated every day. Pfizer just announced the results of a small preliminary study that found its vaccine was well-tolerated and 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 in children ages 12 to 15. Children 16 and older can already get the Pfizer vax. And as the Biden administration has made clear, it wants kids back in classrooms ASAP and has provided a bunch of money to help schools do that safely. All of that makes at least one decision as parents a little easier, (laughs) but not easy. Nothing about this is going to be easy, it seems. But that's okay. Slowly but surely, I think we're all beginning to be able to imagine a time when this is behind us and we're back watching our kids doing whatever it is that brings them joy, whether it's singing in their choirs and auditoriums or competing in person in debate tournaments or playing games on ball fields or simply sitting with their special education teacher side by side, learning. That time is coming. It really is. I can't wait. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by me. Sound design and music by Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Special thanks this week to TPR's education reporter, Camille Phillips, who sat down with the Yedra family and gave them space to tell their story. And Mark Mehmet for his continuing contributions to the show. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. Support for the Petri Dish podcast comes from Pay It Forward, providing sober living for newly recovering individuals. Pay It Forward is hosting their first annual skeet shoot at noon on March 26th. Sponsorship and registration information is at payitforwardsa.org backslash events.